uncommon sense advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. Hi, I'm Marty Nemco. I went to see my grandkids uh, in D.C. cross country, and that gave me a lot of time to do some thinking on the plane and during the dead spots during the, uh, the time we were hanging out. And I kept note of all the various little ideas that uh, popped into my brain, and I thought I would share them with you. I'm going to quickly just list them so you know where I'm going, and then I'll go back to each of them. Uh, first is uh, regarding uh, journaling versus therapy, which is what wiser to use. Uh, wine versus soda. I have thoughts about uh, uh, the wine thing. Some thoughts about how foolish men are to fall for really shallow techniques uh, to get some get him to fall in love with her. Uh, I think the term effective altruism is, is, is ironic, highly ineffective, their, uh, their criteria for effective altruism. I'll propose something better. I want to talk about the criticality of uh, ideological diversity over melanin diversity. I want to talk about government as theater. Government acts as, you know, everything, the testimonies, the speeches, campaigning. Uh, it's it's not real. It's not helping the society maximally. It is more theater than substance. I want to talk about the guy who was sitting next to me on the airplane, who was a software engineer who wants to get more into uh, climate, environmental stuff, and my response to him. And he's at the end. He said, "You have you given me a lot to think about." So I want to talk about that. Then I want to talk about a little bit about the silliness of electric cars. That there was all virtue signaling, which is a related point. The advice I'd give to a bright science, technology, engineering, math-oriented person uh, in terms of career, uh, marijuana. I have a very radical idea around marijuana and alcohol. Uh, how to radically change education, how to be more realistic and make moderate changes in education, and little incremental that I think are fresh, new, and important. Uh, I want to talk about uh, what to do when you've screwed up, whether it be in a one-on-one uh, -on -one with a friend or uh, in a performance or whatever. And then my current thinking about uh, artificial intelligence and the current debate that's uh, uh, raging in the, uh, among the leading podcasts about what will happen when, uh, when artificial intelligence is smarter than we are. Can we control them? We won't be able to pull the plug. I have some thoughts that are contrarian, uh, but I believe deeply. Nothing I'm going to say is something I don't believe. Everything I'm going to say is, but I focus on things that are not conventional wisdom. Often recommended... And this is going to seem like an odd comparison, but drinking water out of the tap, which is free, is wonderful. And yet we spend zillions of dollars on bottled water because there's profit to be made in it. And similarly, there is a lot of money to be made in telling people to go into therapy and counseling of various sorts. And yet it is my belief that often journaling, just writing in a blank book of your choice, memo pad or a book or online at a very private um, Microsoft Word address that nobody would go to look at would be more effective because it's empowering. Usually you know most of your own answers. It's free. You can do it anytime you want, 24-7, uh, 365. And I really think that journaling is the most underrated approach, approach to self-employment. Next, wine versus soda. I think if we attach a pleasure meter to people, uh, most people would say they get more pleasure uh, out of the soda than wine, their favorite flavor of soda. Uh, yes, I understand that wine can make you relax, make you feel better, but first of all, uh, especially compared to uh, non-sugared sodas uh, and sparkling water that has a little flavored essence, the, the flavor is better, there's no, there's no health risk, the cal there's no calories. Wine just intrinsically, very few people, if they're honest, say it really tastes good. And it costs, of course, you know, cheap bottle of wine is five bucks. Expensive bottle of wine can be 50 bucks. And by the way, many studies show people can't tell the difference. Or if they can, it sure ain't worth 10 times the money. So, you know, lemmings, shallow they are, will go and spend a lot of money on wine. Silly, 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 silly from where I sit. Uh, my favorite story about the wine thing is when they had a famous international wine competition and they, had, they have different events and one of them had three decanted wines red, that were red. The uh, expert judges from around the world were asked to, to rate them and of course the ratings weren't all the same. Some said 95, 93, 91, you know, but what was really, and, and they all had notes, you know, this was the typical notes you'd expect on a red wine. It, it was jammy, it had berries and fruit forward and all this other stuff. Well, the truth is they were all white wines that they had simply put red food coloring in. 
And these were world-class experts. The world of wine is bullshit. And that is one. There are many other studies and examples. It's an absurd pissing away of money and a whole example of capitalism as its worst. It's a, a billion-dollar industry based on smoke and mirrors. It's garbage. Nothing. Okay, next topic. This is something I tweeted uh, today. Are many men so foolish that all it takes for, for, for a guy to fall for a woman is for her to look good, flirt, and then fawn on him temporarily? I'll read it again. Are many men so foolish that all it takes for them to fall for a woman is for her to look good and flirt and then fawn on him temporarily? Especially when, you know, I have my next door neighbor is getting divorced. Her, she's beautiful. She's drop dead gorgeous. But oh, the pain, the cost, having to get rid of the house, the children, the suffering, years, lawyers. And I knew, you know, uh, I, I don't want to say anymore. It's tales out of school. Let's just say there are huge risks in falling for someone based on their looks and being flirted with. Next topic. You know, one of the most hottest topics on social media, on uh, Astro, whatever it's called, Codex that I subscribe to, as well as major podcasts, you know, whether it be uh, Lex Friedman or Sam Harris and, you know, a number of those, Dwarkesh Patel, all the leading really smart guy, and they're all guys, for whatever reason, we'll leave that to another day. They're all talking about the joys of effective altruism. I can't think of less of, and what they call effective, the, the, the poster child for effective altruism is to buy mosquito nets for uh, people in sub-Saharan Africa because that'll prevent a lot of malaria. Of course, that's got benefit. I'm not saying it doesn't. But what should count is what I call gross world, not happiness, but gross world flourishing. What is the uses of dollars and of time that are going to lead to the most gross world flourishing. And while, yes, it, of course, is heart-rendering and wonderful and human and certainly not a bad thing to do to help prevent malaria in sub-Saharan Africa, but if you care about making the biggest difference to the world, I would argue that there are many, many other ways to have a bigger positive effect, but it won't feel as cool or redistributive. And an example that I just wrote on, on Astral Codex is to fund the development of software that would pair, it's like Match.com, but for mentoring, that would pair low-income intellectually gifted kids who have tremendous unrealized potential because they are low-income, train them online with little, on how to be a good mentee, a good protege, and they get paired online with a well-suited mentor who is also online screened and trained so that this huge amount of if any if education or in any kind of environmental intervention is going to matter at all it's going to be one-on-one -on -one and where there is a clear one-on-one -on -one matching between the mentor and the protege creating that software and then promulgating so that the thousands of pairs of these low-income gifted kids and mentors all trained could interact with each other online or if they pass a certain amount of screening for safety or whatever by phone, but not in person, the risks are too great with children and all the rest of it these days, that would enable far more people. There's so much unrealized potential in those kids. They're much more likely as a result to become curers of our disease, preventer of our diseases like cancer, or um, becoming wise leaders, or just simply inventing a better iPhone, or, or just any they're more likely to have ripple effect on humankind. Wiser uses of AI while minimizing the perils, reducing the risks of, uh, of bioterrorism, cyberterrorism, huge potentials, climate change, much more so than if we're buying mosquito nets for kids in South Saharan Africa because they, they face so many barriers to becoming those very wise leaders that probabilistically, and that's how we really should be thinking, statistically, probabilistically. The chance of your dollars and your time making the biggest difference to humankind, which is what we really should consider, what I call gross human flourishing, would be to donate things to like that mentoring, creating that software that I just described. Effective altruism is as currently defined by the big poobahs who are uh, 
founding effective altruism, even that Sam Bankman-Fried, he was a big, before his fraud was uncovered, he was a big advocate for what he called effective altruism. Spoke, quote, gave billions of dollars, at least in Bitcoin, to what he called effective altruism. And the Gates Foundation also considered the model of great charity. But they, by their own admission, I believe, I can't swear to this, they have redirected a lot of their money away from the very poorest because of their poor return. That's true of very, the very lowest achievers, at least I, I think that's true in American education. They've redirected some money, at least, away from the, the very lowest achievers. Now I want to talk about ideological diversity. We tended to celebrate these days diversity of melanin, diversity of culture. What matters is diversity of ideology. It's going to matter in any, whether it be in college discussions or workplace discussions. There could be two people from the exact same background, and they could be from, from white bread middle America, and yet one could be a, a wild liberal, one could be a conservative, one could have a, a utilitarian viewpoint, one could have a redistributionist viewpoint, and they could vary on every, one could be an atheist, one could be religious, one could be materialistic, one couldn't be not. This notion that we, we define diversity in terms of race, gender, sexual orientation is absurd because there are Asian Americans who are liberal and conservative. There's just too big a range. We should, we, diversity of ideas, as long as there's intelligence undergirding all of it, there should be diversity but of ideology, not race. When we do it by race and gender and sexual orientation, it's virtue signaling. It's succumbing to pressure from the government. It's succumbing to pressure from peers to not appear racist, sexist, homophobic, blah, blah, blah. blah. But if we care about, again, gross world flourishing, what we should focus on is ideological diversity, which often is the key to better solutions to the world's problems. It struck me as I was watching C-SPAN, which I often do, is that government is theater. When, for example, they are screening a Supreme Court nominee or any, any, any nominee that needs a Senate confirmation, those candidates are so carefully prepped to evade questions they don't want to answer, to say things that are going to appeal to the swing, to the swing votes, or when they bring in people to testify, they, they comb the nation to find some poster child person for whatever the bill is that they want to pass. Is this a rational, probabilistic analysis of what's going to be the wisest use of taxpayer dollars? Never. Uh, never is too strong, but certainly. Government is theater, whether it be t testimony or t vetting candidates or in, when politicians give speeches. The key words and phrases and ideas are heavily based not on what's necessarily best for the country, but based on focus groups of the swing voters, what's going to make them vote for this candidate? Government, that's theater. So when the government gives a, the, 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 the candidate gives a speech, it's a speech that has been carefully filtered to appeal to the swing voters or to get the vote out among the, the people who are there, but not necessarily what's best for the country. Usually. Government is theater. <laughs> when a politician ends up in the media, how often do they evade the questions they don't want? And the media, of course, you know, has a finger on the scale in the liberal direction. Anybody who argues not is wrong, simply wrong. And don't tell me about the Fox News. Fox News is, is, there was a study done that actually shows that they're more balanced than almost any of the other media. In, it was covering the 2016 campaign. But certainly, you know, you watch any interview of a, a, a politician, a liberal politician, generally gets softballs. And if he chooses to not answer a question, the interviewer lets it go. If a conservative is on, the interviewer is going to pound away at him and make him look like an idiot and ask only the hard questions or mainly the hard questions. That's government as theater. And believe me, the politicians have been coached. Again, avoid answering any questions you don't like. Government is theater. I want to talk about climate change. The guy who was sitting next to me on the plane was a software engineer, Berkeley graduate. And he was telling me that he wanted to switch away from, he's a software engineer, I don't know what he was working on, maybe, you know, some kind of a sound chip or whatever. And he wanted to switch to environmental. And this is what I said to him. I said, the world is committing to trillions of dollars of financial cost, for example, $100 to fill our gas tank, or uh, thousands of dollars a year to heat and cool our homes. 
and arguably even more painful human costs. Take one just example. In an attempt to cool the planet, which I'm going to argue is really unlikely to occur as a result of anything they're even proposing, the federal government and most liberal and state and local governments are allocating transportation dollars to drive us out of our cars, thereby making us face this horrible catch-22 between two- and three-hour-a-day gridlock-larded commutes in our cars, or at least have an island of, of peace, or we have even longer... Uh, oh, by the way, the gridlock is ever more likely because they're not building freeways anymore. That's part of the new transportation plan, gas out of a car. Or we get crammed in the mass transit that doesn't take you from point to point, and you're, it's uncomfortable being in there, and it's noisy, and it's loud, or you're chained to your home. For example, I have a close friend, 30-plus years. He lives only maybe 15 miles from me as the crow flies, and yet it would take me an hour and a half each way to get there, even on a weekend, because they're not building freeway lanes, despite the ever-increasing amount of tolls and roads and bridges. And mass transit would take me a half day each way. And this friend of mine is now in his 90s. I love the guy. And I would ideally like to see him, but the above makes it functionally prohibitive. Multiply that little tiny example by the billions of people's decisions to go to see people in places where they want, commute, recreationally, whatever. That's all being impeded by this multi-trillion dollar, quote, investment in trying to cool the planet. Is that all to be, is that going to be worth it? For that all to be worth it, all of the following have to be true. That climate change is substantially anthropogenetic, created by men. And probably most of the consensus roughly is that 95% that's going to be true. But all the following, that climate change is substantially anthropogenic, P equal 0.95 that the consensus projected two degrees centigrade, centigrade decline in climate that would accrue from 50 to 75 years of the great great spending and human incursion into humankind freedom would be a net plus. Because there's some areas like in Canada and Scandinavia and Russia and parts of China that if there's global warming, there are many more that would be livable and arable and you could grow, grow things. But the consensus is that there would be a net positive. Well, but they're not, nobody's sure. So let's say that's 80% sure. So now you've got 95% possibility that climate change is substantially anthropogenetic, 80% that the consensus projected two degrees Celsius decline will be a net plus. Three, and this is a critical one, that the world's 195 nations will remain in substantial compliance with those great restrictions and expensive restrictions for the 50 to 75 years that it's anticipated are going to be needed before a sustainable mix of energy sources is in sufficient use. The probability of that, anybody in private, privately will admit that, that, that probability that is no more than 20%. And finally, it also requires that this investment to be worth it, that a technological solution like safer, safe, nu safe enough nuclear or safe enough hydrogen or some other technology I'm not even aware of yet would be available long before that 50 to 75 years, and the estimate could be about 0.5. Well, the key of the punchline is that for all that trillions of dollars of investment and pain to humankind to be worth it, that all of the, the joint probability has to be true. The 0.95 times that climb, the climate change is substantially anthropogenetic, that 80% chance that the consensus projected two degree decline in temperature will be a net plus, the, the, the 0.2 probability, 20% probability that the world's 195 nations are going to remain in substantial compliance for the 50 to 75 years that it's anticipated will be required before a sustainable mix of energy is going to be available, and that, they, that the 0.5 possibility that such a technology, technological solution won't be available long before that 50 to 75 years. The joint probability of that is at most 10%. An investment of trillions and trillions of dollars and huge amounts of human effort on at most a 10% chance of it's worth it. Now, compare that with the opportunity costs, what the money and time could be spent on, an all-out assault on cancer, research on gene editing so that we can improve intelligence and altruism, maybe for once finally breaking the multi-generational poverty and violence and drug abuse that comes from 
from being unable to negotiate a modern world. Research to identify how education can live up to its promise rather than be so disappointing. For example, in closing the achievement gap, which is as wide as ever, or enabling our best and brightest to compete with students in Asian countries. Therefore, it is wise to suspend efforts to control the climate except where there is good data and a priori reasoning to believe that a specific intervention would yield improvement in gross world flourishing that outweighs the costs, human and fiscal, of those efforts. For example, by restricting oil production, we're increasing that price of gas and our dependency on foreign oil. Whether that's worth it depends on how great a reduction in climate change and the disease caused by pollution would accrue. So, without all this passion that I'm showing to you, this is what I said to the guy sitting next to me, who is the software engineer, a Berkeley graduate software engineer, who's thinking about moving the environment. And when I f finished this, laying out this argument, he said, wow, you have given me a lot to think about. And I'm hoping I'm giving you a little bit to think about too, before you continue to just vote for uh, more environmental restrictions. Okay, now, uh, next topic. Completely had nothing to do with anything else, but I see that people, maybe especially out here in California, but maybe more broadly, are much better at being polite than being open to new, better ideas. The people are so hell-bent on having agency that they would rather have a lower probability of being right, but do it their way than to try somebody else's idea. That's not always true, but it's often true. I'll give you an example. I was, uh, again, I'm still talking about my, you know, the musings that were going through my head at Thanksgiving. I was at the reservation, uh, at the Quinta car reservation uh, thing, and the cars weren't ready yet. There weren't people, enough people working, and so they still weren't, the car wasn't cleaned. So I was talking with the reservationist, nice guy. And uh, I said, is this the career you, you're, you're, you're looking at long-term? He says, no, I'd like to be a planetary scientist. And I said, that's, that's interesting. Uh, why? Because there's so much we don't know. I asked a few more questions, and it was clear that his being, it wasn't random that he was a reservationist at Budget Rent-A-Car. He wasn't that bright, and he only had an associate's degree, I believe. And I know something a little bit about every career. I'm a career counselor. And become, there are very few jobs as planetary scientists. And almost all, oh yeah, and he liked Neil deGrasse Tyson. Right, he's a very public, famous, a very charismatic, excellent communicating astronomer. But those were very flimsy reasons, especially given who this guy was. He's about 30 years old. At maximum had some bachelor's degree and had very basic flimsy reasons for wanting to be a climate a planetary scientist and there are very few jobs, and all those go to PhDs, usually from Caltech or Stanford or Berkeley or uh, MIT. So I said, you know, I think that's a fascinating field. You're right, there's so much we don't know. But I'm just wondering, given that it's such a long road to hoe and it's so risky whether you'll actually get a decent job, whether that might be a very serious avocation, a hobby. And uh, there was a woman standing in the line next to it and said, why are you being a wise ass? You know, Give it unwanted advice, even if it's as benevolent and thoughtful, is rejected in today's zeitgeist. And that's what got me thinking about this concept that people are much better at being polite. Yeah, good idea. If I had said, yeah, that's a really great idea. Go for it. Be a good, you know, I'm glad you want to be a, a planetary scientist. Cool. That's socially acceptable. And yet it's ultimately not, it's less likely to be of value to that person than my candid evaluation. Now, of course, it was something I know nothing about, like I'm terrible at fixing anything. I'd never give anybody advice on how to fix something. But career is something I know a lot about. And yet, even though it was clear that I knew what I was talking about, the word she used to describe me was wise-ass. I think that's a sign of the times and not good. I also, just a, a little out of order, but having spoken to the guy about the environment, he, he, uh, he drives a Tesla. And I said, you know, when one calculates the 
cost, remember, in order for a car to be plugged in, it gets plugged into the grid, and the grid uses fossil fuels to f provide the electricity for the electric car. And they use huge batteries, and batteries use rare earths, those are elements that are very limited. And you, every time you build an electric car, you're using of that irreplaceable resource. And these are big, heavy cars. There's metals and plastics, and remember, plastics emit emissions when in the, in the fabrication of plastics. So the net impact on cooling the planet of electric cars is next to zero. It's virtue signaling. Think about that. Even if you're a true believer in climate stuff, you're more likely to benefit by buying a Prius, which gets 50 miles a gallon, but clearly you're saving gas with that, and I, don't, I drive a Prius, than an electric car. Next, if I were advising a bright uh, science, technology, engineering, math-oriented kid, what career uh, to consider? If he, was, he had to be quite bright, but number one, it would be, since we're talking about energy, one of them would certainly be to do what's called basic research. Basic doesn't mean elementary. Basic means not yet for use in the real world. We're not yet ready to really, there's so much we do not know about the creation of energy. For example, nuclear fusion. How can we use nuclear fusion we need to understand what goes on, and this is out of my area of expertise, but I do as I understand it. There is physics and math that we need to understand about the way in which atoms can be optimally controlled so as to not to be safe and yet provide a great amount of energy in ever more compact settings. And to me, a really smart person would be very wise to major in physics or math or molecular biology to understand the basics, that is the foundations of the way energy is created molecule by molecule so as to lay the foundation for 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, really safe nuclear hydrogen or some other technology we don't yet develop. I would, if someone was more biologically oriented, Absolutely, molecular biology and genomics. You know, I look at the pain that people suffer from cancer, uh, that there is a genetic predisposition, for example, to obesity. As every mom knows, personalities vary from child to child, and some are born very impulsive and others are more reflective. Some are seem to learn very quickly and can problem solve and are sponges, and others are much slower. The ability to understand how to ethically but effectively do gene editing to reduce violence, increase problem-solving ability, increase resistance to diseases like cancer. Being an expert at molecular biology and genomics, which also interacts a lot with math and chemistry and physics, if I'm dealing with a smart person, those were the two areas I would most encourage my kid to consider, of course, it depends on his preferences as well, but I, I do think if you go in those areas, you would find a niche that you would grow to care about a lot. And I think over the young person's lifetime, that's where the growth is going to occur. That's where the progress, that's where the excitement is going to occur. Just personally, I, if I were starting out, I'd be very interested in studying, comparing the genomes and the brain images of people with well above normal intelligence and problem-solving ability, average intelligence and problem-solving ability, and significantly below average in intelligence and probability, and look for the differences in the genomes and in the structures in the brain. And again, I'm always considering ethics. You know, I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. The last thing I want to do is coercive eugenics. But I do think that as long as we are very thoughtful about the ethics, for example, subsidizing any gene editing for the poor, just like we do most medical procedures, and other safeguards, I think that holds great promise for improving, again, gross world flourishing, gross human flourishing. Word about marijuana and other thoughts.
the argument, I, I have written reviews of the literature on the effects of marijuana for Time Magazine and for Psychology Today and somebody else I don't remember. Uh, I certainly have done two for Psychology Today, uh, one not so long ago. And I was shocked at what the unbiased research says. Not the advocates, but, you know, while I'm not the biggest fan of universities, I would certainly rather trust university research on the effects of marijuana than some advocacy group. And the, really, and the results are summarized on the Center for Disease Control's uh, website, if you just Google marijuana dangers, uh, Center for Disease Control or something like that. It's frightening, the cancer and heart disease and memory loss and mental functioning and anxiety increase and depression increase socially. There, there are huge risks. It's worse than a second alcohol. Well, the advocates, just regular people, and I'm not saying even people who are advocating for legalizations, but people say, hey, man, what are you going to do, make uh, alcohol illegal too? I honestly would. I know that in Prohibition, the use of alcohol dropped 30%. Of course, there was plenty of moonshine and the rest of it. But when you look at the cost of what alcohol has done to people's lives, their health, their family's health, their jobs, car accidents, and marijuana appears to be even a notch or two more dangerous, especially to young people in their developing brains, I would make both alcohol and marijuana illegal. There are many better things to do with one's recreational life, and we would save so much human misery. Again, using my criterion of what would encourage gross world flourishing. I believe the net, while I, am, I don't like to restrict people's freedoms, my number one criterion is, will it increase growth, human flourishing? And I am convinced that um, that making both illegal would be a wise thing to do, even though certainly there'd be a lot of cheating, but the net effect would be positive. Education. Um, my PhD was focused on evaluation of innovation, especially as it pertained to education. And I want to propose three things, and these are things I was thinking about during this. Again, these this are all the things that were going through my, my head during this Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, plenty of dead time. My favorite is a radical idea, and this is a, a, an expansion of an idea I've mentioned before called supercourses, but I'm now calling this the Exploration Dome. I'm not quite sure if it would work well enough at the elementary school level, but I'm feeling more confident about it in high school, that the kids would, and it may be at the elementary too, there would be this large, I'm picturing this large room in which the kids, there would be many, many stations, one of which would be computer terminals where the kids would have these, take modules in all these subjects in math and history and so whatever, uh, practical things like uh, managing your money and sex and uh, uh, career and, you know, dealing with your parents and, you know, relationships and communication. So that all these modules that kids would, on a self-paced basis, could take. That's these super courses, and they would be taught online by these transformational, amazing teachers, augmented by simulations and video and gamification and all the rest of it. But there would also be exploratory things in the real world. At the elementary school level, it might be toy, interestingly, edutainment toys that they could manipulate and learn from. Uh, physical things to try and experiments, you know, different kind of chemistry experiments. I'm not quite sure, but this this exploratory room. And there would be a teacher or a paraprofessional there, both for classroom management to answer one-on-one -on -one questions, etc. There's something I like about that. The other variant of that is the kids sit home in the morning. Kids are teenagers to have a slow time getting up in the morning. And they would simply using, they would go to their computer and face recognition. You know, computers now can recognize your face. And, and they would do these modules in the morning and then come to a school building for extracurriculars, co-curriculars, things that are team things like a orchestra. By the way, I just heard a concert, uh, my favorite piece, which is the overture to the show Gypsy, where these, this group, 16 of them, were in their own apartments and they were playing and they had their headphones in the ears so they could hear each other and they did the most amazing version. Please Google Kings of Broadway, Overture to Gypsy, 
it's a video, and you'll see you'll see all 16 words. I think it's 25 of them for everything from a harp to a piccolo player, uh, and it is such great music, so well played. So my point is that even that could be done virtually. So even the tradition you would think you'd have to get together for orchestra at the high school level, even that could be done virtually, although I am not oblivious to the value of getting together in person. So there would be some in person, but it could be a much smaller, less expensive high school campus. The, that's, that's my radical idea, something about the exploration dome and maybe doing some of this at home. A, a less radical idea for re reinventing education is to what I call avoid the tyranny of content. What really counts in education are not quadratic equations, not the causes of the Peloponnesian War, not stochastic processes in chemistry, but critical thinking, thinking probabilistically, making decisions. What's the probability? Thinking in terms of what is the probability of this versus that? What are the opportunity costs? And communication verbally and in writing. Right now, too much of the curriculum, especially in the Common Core curriculum, is subject to what I call the tyranny of content. There's so much that's got to get, quote, covered. That so much gets covered that nobody learns anything that's of real value in the critical thinking area, the probability and communication. Yeah, they can list the cause of the Civil War, but that doesn't do it. What counts is in the myriad real-world situations, being able to think critically, to analyze what they're reading. How much of this is fact? How much of this is likely to be biased? How rigorous is the argument? What should I do? How should I solve this real-world problem? How should I communicate it effectively, rhetorically, to be persuasive in writing and verbally? School doesn't do much of that. Much more of the time should be spent on that. And then the curriculum, of course, is absurd. As I said, are the, what, all this critical thing stuff should be done in the context of what kids care about and, need, and everybody needs. Even PhDs in engineering rarely use algebra, let alone, you know, 17-dimensional spaces. There should be an emphasis on real-world probability, real-world statistics, real-world critical thinking, and real-world things that kids care about. Kids care about romance. They care about money. They care about career. They care about cars. All that critical thinking should be in that as the context of what kids care about. That would be educational reform. And more modestly, assuming nothing's going to change, and remember, schools do change at a glacier-like pace, there are a couple of things within the current educational framework that I think are particularly worthy of a shout out. My daughter participated in high school debate. Many high schools have a debate team. I love that because that does teach critical thinking. And I do like being a great, teaching great, being a gracious winner and a gracious loser. And competition done moderately, work hard at it, but then be gracious at the outcome, it's got great value. The other one I really believe in is theater. You develop public speaking, you get to read plays again and again and again, so you, something is really likely to sink in, in terms of the universals that are often at the core of what are great plays. And I'm also, I feel sad when I see parents so structure their kids. They've got soccer, they've got religious school, they've got gymnastics, they've got, uh, they've got uh, social activism, they've got uh, all these different things that they do after school. SAT prep, which is I consider utterly ridiculous because the actual amount of growth is small and getting into a better, quote, better, more selective school has minimal impact on your likely success in life. But that's another story. Even the vaunted Harvard name on your diploma, while it's a, definitely a plus, it's got minuses and most kids don't get into Harvard. They're talking more about getting into uh, uh, Syracuse rather than State University of New York at the Oneonta. And the difference there is absolutely trivial. It's certainly not worth prostituting yourself to take the SAT three times and doing extracurriculars you don't want to do. I believe in the value of unstructured time. Kids left to their own device, not only will we cycle and be able to breathe finally for a little bit, but they will choose activities that build on their natural strengths and preferences. I, for one, nobody could call me a low achiever. And I recall some of the f my favorite moments of my childhood, simply being unstructured and either lying in my bed listening to the hi-fi first purchase i ever made was a nice speaker and i would love listening to music or i would when it was uh, winter i would look out and look at the snow a light on the window and just love it and the cars go by and see if i can remember the names of the cars or 
lying on the grass in the summer and looking up and seeing the clouds scud by. Those are my very favorite memories of my childhood. I was not social. So my parent pushed me to do social stuff. Join the soccer team. You know, play in the orchestra. You know, that would be a very poor fit for who I am. Unstructured time is underrated. Okay, last couple of things I want to talk about. When someone screws up, we all screw up. What do you do? I'm not sure what I'm going to say about this, but I, I listed all the different ways, contexts in which we screw up. When my daughter took ballet classes as a child, the we tend to remember rhymes. And I remember what her instructor, Madame Bovy, would tell all the ballet students. When in doubt, bourre out. That means when you think you're about to screw up and you're on stage, bourre is you put your hands above and you get on toes and you just, you, you exit. So having a strategy for what you're going to do when you screw up and realizing it just isn't that important in the scheme of things. You notice even in this, I'm not, nothing I'm saying to you is scripted. And if you don't like something, I'm going to say, I can live with it. Even if there's some social justice warrior who some magnifies something, takes it out of context and, you know, describes me as something bad, I can live with it. I can deal with it. I'm just, all I care about is being authentic. And that's when I'm playing the piano. I don't hold back. I try to play as well as I can, even if I want to make more mistakes. The great skiers in the Olympics, they don't play cautious. They go and they slalom down and try to get right near that pole, even though there's some chance they're going to fall. Go for it. You make a mistake, you make a mistake. If you're an actor, don't hold back. Be that you're creating memories when you're an actor. Act all the way. Be amazing. And if you screw up a line, or even you screw up five lines or whatever, nobody can remember that. Just go on. Be big. Be yourself. Unless your character is supposed to be small, then be small. But don't hold back. Errors don't matter that much. In a speech, again, like this, I, all I did was make a list of the topics I wanted to talk about and the main points I wanted to talk about. And then I've deviated. I've ad-libbed. I'm just being Martin Nemco. This is who I really am. I did have a cup of coffee, which probably made me too hyped up, but I can't help that. Too bad. It comes down to an, a sense of perspective. How important is this really? It is more important to be authentic than to be perfect, for sure. And then forgive yourself when you screw up, because you will screw up, I screw up, everybody screws up. At a meeting... When you say something stupid and somebody calls you on it, the best thing you could say is, good point. Good point. And that curtails their antipathy to you and it shows how open-minded you are. When you screw up with a friend and you say you put your foot in the mouth, say, oh, I misspoke, I'm sorry, or something like that, and move on. Make a I played baseball in college. I threw a wild pitch and I felt like shit. But the, if I wish I had more control, when I was a young, in college, I was too nervous because I, I had no little experience. I was had a good fastball and screwball, but I had no experience, so I was nervous on the mound. But when you make a mistake, the best thing you can do is, if you can, is breathe and say, everybody makes a mistake. In the, large, in the larger scheme of things, it doesn't matter. If we lose 10 to nothing, if I walk four batters in a row and they pull me out, the world won't end. I'll laugh about it five years from now. Try to have perspective. And finally, and I'm really a little uncomfortable about where I'm going to go with this, I've been listening to some podcasts about artificial intelligence. Uh, and I, it's not my field at all. Um, but I want to share what my current thing. I think it's mental masturbation to be all this talk about what they call artificial superintelligence or artificial general intelligence. In other words, where, where computers are at least as smart, if not a lot smarter than us, in a very broad sense. And we worry that they're gonna be so smart that we're not gonna be able to just pull the plug. They'll, they'll, be, they'll network with each other or we won't be specific enough in the advice we give it. We say, we say, get rid of cancer. Well, one of the ways you can get rid of cancer is by killing everybody and that gets rid of cancer. But I think these are mental masturbation, intellectual exercises that are so far in the future from what computers are able to likely do or what we're likely to fund that I think it's more the realm of science fiction movies and again, Luddite, anti-technology kind of people. Uh, I think it's foolish. Most artificial intelligence is gonna be funded for the next 10 to 20 years based on what I call narrow 
artificial intelligence. That is helping doctors to make better diagnoses, to help accountants pick, figure out the right way to do the taxes, to help um, uh, create apps that are going to do a better job of being virtual counselors. And the odds of that taking over, those taking over the world are, are near zero. So I guess my thought is, let us embrace those things. And of course, when we get closer, which I think is probably 30 to 40 years from now, closer to where there's even a, a 5% or a 2% chance of artificial superintelligence computers being able to uh, uh, control us for nefarious ends, then those few years before is plenty enough time to think about ways to control it or curtail it, whether it be by regulation or whatever. But for now, let's develop that artificial intelligence because that may be the most likely route to improving education, better you know, online teaching, better, psych better psychotherapy, better cures for cancer, better diagnosis, better everything. And yes, we can talk about the fact that certainly lots of jobs are getting lost to, to computers even before, quote, artificial intelligence, deep learning, machine learning. By the way, machine learning is when the machine is teaching itself. And deep learning is a, is a more multi-layered form of artificial intelligence using a more complicated set of what these called neural nets, but that's well beyond my knowledge and what you need to know. Anyway, okay, briefest of summaries, and then we will say goodbye. Talked a little bit about uh, asking you to consider that journaling may be net-net a more a wiser approach to self-improvement and dealing with your malaise than therapy. That don't mindlessly spend a lot of money on wine versus soda. It's, it's just shallow status-seeking. Status Be careful. I was talking about men who you know, fall for a woman merely because she's pretty and will flirt with him and is fawning on him temporarily. Be careful because the cost of a breakup, even before marriage, but certainly afterwards, are great. I think that what's called effective altruism is utterly ineffective and much more effective would be to not necessarily uh, pull on our heartstrings, whether it be helping animals or poor people in developing countries who are, at best will stay alive, which is important, but relative to gross world flourishing, better to focus on people who have great potential to improve gross world flourishing. And my quintessential example is low-income gifted kids and mentoring, because one-on-one -on -one is more likely to change kids than any classes. Uh, and software is more likely to be scalable. And online training of both mentors and protégés. I think that's far more effective altruism than what's currently de described as effective altruism. I'm a huge fan of ideological diversity. I think melanin diversity and race, class, and gender diversity is inimical to what is ultimately going to be more contributory to gross world uh, flourishing. Uh, I want to see people who are ideologically conservative, liberal, materialistic, not uh, care or more science-oriented, more humanities-oriented, that matters, and they can be of the exact same uh, demographic background. The older I get, the more skeptical I get about the worthy of, of government. Uh, so much of what they do is theater. I gave lots of examples, whether it be testimony of, uh, of uh, people that need to be confirmed by the Senate, speeches by politicians, campaign speeches, media interviews. Uh, it feels like it's much more theater and too little of what really is best for humankind in terms of gross world flourishing. Climate change, I think when one is really thorough and not just knee-jerk about all of the different things that have to be true in order for uh, the multi-trillion dollar spend and true increase in the amount of human incursion of human freedom and increases in human pain to work, that we have to agree, and I, I do agree, and most experts do, that climate change is substantially anthropogenetic. Two, that the projected two seven degree degree uh, decline that even if we had we we comply, all 195 countries are in substantial compliance with the great restrictions. You know, is that going to be a net plus? Is it going to occur before the technological solutions would have occurred? Without all that human pain, I think we need to look much more probabilistically and clear-eyed about all the opportunity costs and costs and benefits to humankind now across the 50 to 75 years, across the 50 to 75, uh, across the 195 com uh, countries. Um, 
if I were, and the electric cars, for reasons I won't repeat, are really virtue signaling and have almost no impact on climate change. If I were advising a bright STEM student I would, who is really quite bright, I would encourage them to major in physics, chemistry, or mathematics, or molecular biology toward the studying of really safe, truly safe enough nuclear hydrogen energy or understanding genomics so that we can prevent and or cure things like horrible cancers, do ethical gene editing to improve altruism, impulse control, intelligence, etc. Uh, I really believe that the public needs to pay more attention to the really terribly scary data around marijuana, and uh, as, as politically unpalatable as it is, I would make both marijuana and alcohol illegal from a, from a perspective of what will increase gross human flourishing. Uh, I've talked about radically changing education with what are called exploration domes, which are highlighted by what I call super courses, where world-class transformational teachers would teach curriculum that kids really care about, uh, whether it be sex or communication or critical thinking or whatever, but in the context of subjects kids care about, cars, relationships, uh, all the things, that, the, the topics that kids, the teenagers care about. But we teach critical thinking and writing and communication, eth effective communication through those. Uh, within the status quo, the two things that I think are most educational are debate, excellent for teaching critical thinking and teamwork and, and being gracious as a winner or loser. Theater, getting to, to learn your public speaking and your poise and, and getting reading plays again and again and again, important ideas likely to stick. And the value of unstructured time is incredibly important for individualizing a kid's experience and pleasure. When you've screwed up, it's really important to just breathe and go on and have some perspective. It ain't that important in the long, in the, in the scheme of things. And finally, Artificial intelligence, uh, I think, is a huge net plus, especially because in the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to be staying on narrow AI, figuring out how to improve diagnosis, how to improve accounting, how to improve education, how to improve decision-making in general. No, we're not talking about in the next 10 to 20 years, computers are going to be so smart, they're going to take over the world. That's, that's movies. And it's fun to talk about on a podcast, but I consider it mental masturbation. Let us embrace artificial intelligence and focus now on how we, what are we going to do about the increased unemployment that's going to accrue? That is tough. And then I have talked about that in other, other contexts, but I've since already almost in an hour. I'm going to stop at that for now. In any event, I do thank you for watching. I am Marty Nemco. This is a, um, if you're watching on YouTube, great. If it's also going to be a, a podcast uh, available on Spotify and uh, Amazon Audible and Apple iTunes. As usual, I welcome your thumbs up and accept your thumbs down. I always look forward to your comments and especially like if you hit the share button below. Share on your social media so that my efforts can have broader impact. And I am flattered if you choose to subscribe to my channel. I do like to end the uh, podcast with my very favorite quote that I do believe is more valuable today than maybe ever. It is, we find comfort among those who agree with us. Growth among those who don't. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. For comments on the show or to consult with Dr. Marty Nemko, his email address is mnemko at comcast.net. Post-production of How to Do Life by Terry Rouse. Music by Blue Dot Session. Thanks for listening.